Lovely, how are you doing? All right? It's already quite some service. I mean, baptism and stories, testimonies, but we've been worshipping God. Quite amazing. Um, we're in a series at the moment, in, and we're going through the book of Daniel. And Mike asked me to speak on Daniel 5 tonight. And I've, can, can we turn lights on on these? There we go. Found, found the light switch. So it's quite a long chapter, so bear with me. I'm, I'm going to read it, and because I think it's, it's such a complex story, and it's quite important to, to hear the Word of God and to listen to the way it's written in the Bible. So Daniel 5, from verse 1. Many years later, King Belshazzar, Belshazzar, remember that name, okay? You might call him Belshi, it's easier that way. So... Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for the thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these golden cups taken from the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly they saw the finger of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor, and will I will give him a chain, a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom." But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. Now forward a little bit. Queen Mum remembers. We had a similar situation in the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar, and a man called Daniel from the tribes of Judah, he was called, and he was a wise man. He had the spirit and she calls it the spirit of the gods within him. And he was able to interpret the dreams. So we pick up the story as Daniel comes in before the king. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. But I will tell you what the writing means. 
your majesty. The Most High God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord heaven, uh, of heaven and have the, had these cups from the temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them, while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent his hand to write this message. This is the message that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parzin. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parsin means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes of a gold chain was hung around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. What an incredible story. I don't know, did you enjoy this story? There's quite a lot happening there. You know, the BBC would probably make an eight-part drama out of it, but we listened to it in one go. Daniel notes in his book that God confronts human pride in both kings Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Both were arrogant. Both were shocked by a disturbing dream. Both had the dream explained by Daniel. Both were brought face to face with God, the living God. Nebuchadnezzar turned to God. He embraced the change God wanted for him, and Belshazzar did not. And I suggest to you today that the writing is on the wall, but do we want to catch on to the change that God wants to bring? I believe very strongly that God always lets his people know what he's up to. Jesus puts it very plainly. He said to his disciples, my sheep hear my voice. The question is, are you his sheep? Are you one of his? Are you following the shepherd? And if you are, then you will be one of the people like Daniel who will be able to tune in to what God is up to. Writing is on the wall. I looked it up in the Cambridge Dictionary and it said this. The writing is on the wall is said to mean that there are clear signs that something will fail or no longer exist. 
Interesting. Something will fail or no longer exist. What is it that God has written upon the walls of our societies today? In 1986, I remember uh, being in Germany and intercessors, people who prayed, and prayed a lot for the country and the countries around them, started to pray for one thing. They started to pray that the Eastern communism would crumble. And you would hear it in prayer meetings, here, there, and everywhere. People started to pray. And I find it always interesting, what are the people of God praying these days? What is it that God puts on their hearts? Janie prayed tonight for the youth. I find it interesting. God is speaking to us through what he's put on her heart to pray for. So again, intercessors were praying. 1987, I went to a conference in Frankfurt called the Eurofire Conference. There was a man called Lauren Cunningham from Youth with a Mission, founder of Youth with a Mission, a mission organization. And uh, he spoke a prophetic word and he said, the Berlin Wall will come down. Now, there were about, I don't know, 6,000 people in the room, and probably quite a lot of, of them were skeptic, thinking, oh, yet another American telling us uh, what will happen. Forward again, 1989. I was serving in the army uh, down south in, in Bavaria, in Regensburg. It was September, and people started taking the opportunity on a Sunday stroll to, uh, as, as they were pressing into the border, into Hungary, from eastern Germany, and then finding that they could keep walking on, nobody was stopping them, they came to a little town in Austria, and they kept walking through, and the people were letting them walk right through, and they ended up in Germany, no toothbrush, nothing. They didn't know whether they were able to turn back home, to ever see their loved ones again, to ever see their homes again, to ever take up their jobs again. They just walked into the West. We were then uh, asked to open up a camp uh, for the hundreds of people who came through the soft borders, the softening borders around the Eastern Bloc. A few months later, on the 9th of November, 1989, the wall crumbled. And you probably have seen footage of that and uh, the incredible moment that was. Unbelievable. Nobody could have organized it, but God was up to something, and his church was praying on the eastern side and on the western side. There were lots of people in preparation to the wall coming down, meeting in East Berlin, in the churches for night vigils, praying that something would happen. And God was on the move. A letter that was for, um, you know, read mistakenly by one of the politicians in the eastern Germany caused a, a, a border post to open uh, the, the, the gates, and people would just walk right through it. I think, you know, politicians were overtaken by events because something was set in motion. To me, this is just a sign that God is always involved in our history. We are not theists who believe that God is somewhere out there, distant. Uh, he's sort of created everything and then said goodbye and watches it from afar. I believe God is involved in history. And God is here tonight, and I believe that God wants to challenge us and say, the writing is on the wall, catch on to change. God confronts uh, the king here in our story, and what does he confront? He confronts his deep-seated pride. And I believe that human pride is the main cause of the problems we find ourselves in as a society. In pride, the human mind disconnects from God. 
Proverbs puts it well, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's always a way that seems right to a man. You know, come, give me any problem, and we get busy trying to solve it. And if we're trying to solve it separate from God, we find ourselves so often on the way to death. And this is what uh, the writer of Proverbs really has found out and puts it there for. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, Belshazzar, he thought it was a clever thing to do to take these uh, holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and make them a sign of his power and wealth in his big party uh, while he's in a drunken stupor with uh, not just his nobles, but also his wives and also his concubines. What a party, eh? It's very clearly seen, a man who thinks for himself, who builds his own kingdom, who's disconnected from God. Now, the opposite from a prideful mind is a humble mind. A mind that is connected to God is humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is something that Peter noticed, one of the leading disciples of Jesus. And he had gotten into all sorts of trouble along his way as he was following Jesus, but he was finding that was one of the keys he found out. And he wrote it in 1 Peter in his letter, chapter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is not just the kind of nice Christian thing, you know, like always opening the door for someone else and letting them through. You know, have you ever tried getting through the same door with two Christians at the same time? It's virtually impossible. You know, they say, after you. No, no, after you, you know. They have to beat each other up and roll each other out in order to get out. So that's not the humility I'm talking about. What is humility looking like? Look at Jesus and you will find out. Jesus connected with God and he agreed with him. That is probably the simplest formula I can put it in if you think of discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, then connect to God. That's what we learn as disciples. We learn to connect to him. And then we agree with what God says and, what God, and who God is. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus did only what he saw the Father doing. He didn't have his own agenda, his own plan, his own kind of way of trying to become famous. He just wanted to do what the Father was doing. And he wanted to say what the Father was saying. Jesus stayed connected to the Father and resembled him in every way. I like, if you think of obedience, think of it more like resembling the Father. Just be like him. This is why when he was squeezed by circumstances and disappointments and betrayal, Jesus was still able to love his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them, for, for they do not know what they're doing. Think about it. God is love. And what does it mean, God is love? It means that God is relationship, because you can't just love by yourself. Now, let's not get confused and think, oh, what does the Trinity look like? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how can that even be? To me, it's simple. God is relationship, and there is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit, and each one prefers the other. Each one is there to agree with the other and to fulfill what they have agreed to. So when you look to the cross, you not only see Jesus, but you see 
the cruciform character of the Godhead. And what that means is that they live a life of self-denial that the most difficult relationships, those between three, that's the most difficult, you know, usually one is left out or snubbed or, you know, another preferred. The most difficult relationship, the one of three, he shows us how, to, how that functions. It functions with a deep-seated self-denial, a cruciform character. And the first thing Jesus says to his disciples when, they, when he says, follow me, he says, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. It's a way of humility. It's preferring others. The writing is on the wall, and there are clear signs that pride will fail. Pride thinks for oneself. And God is inviting us to leave the kingdom of self, and he wants us to join the kingdom of us. And that's the difference. And this is the writing on the wall that not everybody understands. People do not understand that this is what God is after. So God is saying, catch on to change. Catch on to humility. Humility is a life lived in connection with the Father in heaven. A life lived in agreement with him. Number two, point two. Embrace the message and be changed. The message of the cross is a very, very powerful message, so strong that people's lives are turned upside down. And one of the things you notice when you move to Britain is that people talk a lot about the weather. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing, uh, you know, because you, it's not difficult to talk to people because you know they love talking about the weather and there's always weather around. So. In Germany, we don't have weather. It's either cloudy for a very long time or it's sunny for a very long time. British weather is interesting. You know, you get out of the house, you're on the dry side, somebody else is on the wet side. <laughs> and uh, if it's you that's on the wet side, you just need to change sides. And Jesus is talking about the same thing in Matthew uh, chapter 16. Now, on the day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority, he replied, you know the saying, red sky means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you do not know how to interpret the signs of the times. Now, that's an interesting term, interpreting the signs of the times. And I believe that God is giving us signs to interpret. And that's part of the church's uh, goal to, to interpret the signs for our culture as well. So these signs are as clear as utterly, and utterly predictable indicators of the weather. Yet too often Jesus' hearers are deaf and blind because of their sinful disposition. Their illiteracy is rooted in a more or less culpable hardness of heart, which dulls understanding rather than any complexity in the signs 
themselves. We encounter the same hardness in Belshazzar. Daniel confronts this in this story by making clear what the message from God means. Daniel himself had embraced the message, living a life of humble dependence and agreement with God. Now, if you look back to what we've been reading here in Daniel, he's very clear, he says, but when Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. And then he goes into this episode that Nebuchadnezzar went through when he was behaving like a cow. He was driven from human society, he was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone who desires to rule over them. I think that God is setting up signs for everyone to understand that he, he is the giver of life, that he is the one that gives and rules. Paul puts it the same message like this. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you and put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Putting off something and putting on something. I believe the fact that our world around us is struggling so much is a huge sign on the wall that is inviting people to come to their wits end and acknowledge that God has a way out of here. And I'm not talking about going to heaven now, but out of our situation. And I think it's important for us as Christians to, to not be too fast and not to be too quick to uh, you know, quit on each other. God set us in relationships. He's given us our spouses, our children, our parents. And where these relationships become difficult, it is not something where we then just check out and say, you know, we can't anymore. No, this is the moment when God says relationship functions in a way, in that moment when you say, I deny myself. And now it's your turn to go and say sorry. Now it's your turn not to be right all the time. Now it's your turn to serve that person and stick with them, even if they're struggling. And I know, you know, I can complain myself. And like, like they used to say back in Germany, there was a lovely lady who, who preached, and, and she said, you know, when, when that happens and you're complaining very loudly, she would say, just don't die so noisily. And I, I kind of, that stuck with me, you know, when I start to complain, I say to myself, don't die so noisily. Number three, and we come to our end of this talk, become the message, become the change. Now, interpreting the signs of the times, the message of God for our time includes interpretation as an actment, as with the actor or musician who interprets a score or, or a script. In this sense, to interpret the gospel is precisely to enact its demands, to live out the kind of life it demands of us, says Michael Kerwin. And I love that, because the sign of the times is like a script that God has painted on our walls, the gospel given to us to enact and to interpret for our culture. Cultures change, we find ourselves in all sorts of places in this world, the gospel stays the same, but it needs to be interpreted so people can hear. 
And people can hear it best when it's preached through a live lift. That doesn't mean that we don't speak and preach. That's utterly important. But it's also important that we show them what it means not to complain when everything is squeezing you. But when you are squeezed, that Christ comes out and not you know, all sorts of foul words or whatever else. It's so important to understand that a Christian marriage is something that is built on a selfless uh, disposition from the start. It's so important to understand that as you work in a non-Christian place maybe, uh, that you, know, you draw from your strength and your acknowledgement from God and not uh, you know, from everybody else around you. That means you can do menial tasks without uh, you know, being put, put out of joint. Is that, can you say that? I don't know. Well, believe me anyway. <laughs> so, to finish, I would like to say, you know, this king, he had no idea about this living God. But what would have happened if he would have fallen to his knees and repented? I think Nebuchadnezzar had that chance, and he acknowledged God. And I think this is the tremendous uh, story that we have. Even though the writing's on the wall, the signs are there uh, that, you know, we are nearing the end, even more so than 2,000 years ago, and Jesus will come again. But what message goes with that? There is still time to turn and accept Jesus to do what? To connect to God and to agree with him. And that's what we want to do in prayer now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have called us to embrace the change and uh, to, to hear the change, to read the signs, but then to become the change as well. And I thank you that your church has been doing that for thousands of years, been involved in interpreting this message and living it out and showing what that looks like. And God, I pray for those who are in difficult relationships that you will help them tonight to connect to you and to agree with you and to follow you as in the night when you were betrayed. You did not complain. You did not call 10 friends and complain about the one that was betraying you. But you cut covenant, you took bread, you took wine, and you said, this is my body, this is my blood that I give for you. When you were on the cross, you didn't call legions of angels to help you down. But when you were on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And you stayed right through until you died and then rose again. And I thank you for life after death. I thank you for the difference that makes even today in our world and in our relationships. And I want to invite you, if you have not decided to follow Jesus yet, why not make tonight uh, the, the first time where you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Now, Christians do that very simply by praying. And if you would like to do that, I just pray a simple prayer. You can pray that in the silence of your heart just by agreeing with me. Just listen to this prayer and pray it with me.
Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you acknowledging that I have lived a life disconnected from you. Forgive me my sins, forgive me my wrongs and where I've hurt people and broken relationships, where I've not lived by your counsel but by my own wisdom. Forgive me and I believe that you're the Son of God. I renounce all evil and I want to follow you, Jesus, for the rest of my life. Amen. Now, if you've prayed that for the first time, I really encourage you to tell someone this week that you've decided to follow Jesus. I encourage you to pray, which means to speak to Jesus just like we talk to each other, and I encourage you to, to read the Bible and then see what happens. And I prophesy <laughs> something will change drastically.